0: Hello and welcome back to
1: Out of Office. Our guest today heads a company that's become a household name. The company's name is Pfizer and the man who leads it, well, his name is Albert Burla. As you know, Pfizer became the first pharma company to get approval for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for COVID. It was a moment the world had been waiting for. Albert tells us what it was like for him.
2: It's difficult even to describe it, and it's difficult even to. It was just an explosion of emotions when that happened. And uh, I sat uh, on a chair and I opened a glass of wine, but suddenly strange emotions were coming in my head. My, my parents, uh, people that died, uh, uh, people that uh, worked very hard to make this vaccine, and I had given them so hard time myself by pushing them and I could feel that now they can see their their efforts rewarded.
1: Albert had been overseeing the development of this vaccine for months. Despite the challenges, he had faith they would create it. He believes the impossible is possible, a view shaped by his family's history and of his parents'
2: Holocaust story. My mother had also brothers that they went to Auschwitz and they survived and came back. Unfortunately, not their parents, but themselves they did. My mom, particularly, that was a very, very optimistic person in, in her life. Uh, she would use that as an example, but never say this is the end, but uh, never say this is impossible. Everything is possible.
1: Albert had a wide ranging conversation with my colleague, Nicole Sawyer. He spoke about the vaccine, vaccine equity, his family, his love for animals. He's a former vet. It's a great conversation, and I do hope you'll make the time to listen to it. So here's Nicole with Albert.
3: I'm Nicole Sawyer, Senior Director of Programming and Senior Editor for Bloomberg Live. I'm joined now by Dr. Albert Berla, the CEO and Chairman for Pfizer. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much, Nicole, and please call me Albert.
3: Sounds good. Albert, what inspired you to pursue a career in the pharmaceutical industry?
2: You know, it was uh, more serendipity. I was uh, always wanted to pursue a career in academia, and uh, I was veterinarian. I did PhD, and uh, I was uh, working in uh, the university. And uh, Pfizer uh, was uh, uh, recruiting in Athens, and somehow a recruiter convinced me maybe to make uh, to take a sabbatical from academia and join Pfizer in Athens, actually in in Greece. I went with the with the the expectations that I will work maybe for less than two years and then I will go back to academia, uh, I I felt that could be an interesting experience. But six months into the job, I loved it. I never went back uh, to academia because I felt that uh, uh, this dynamism and the ability to have an impact uh, that you have in the private sector uh, is what uh, fit most my personality.
3: And you said you were a veterinarian. So I have to ask, how many pets do you have?
2: I have two right now, a smaller one and a bigger one.
3: And what kind of animals are they? What's your favorite animal?
2: Yeah, both are dogs, and uh, I, I, I love dogs, and uh, I love all animals. That's why I became also a veterinarian.
3: Man's best friend. Being the CEO of Pfizer, it's very different today than it was, say, three years ago. How are you coping with this change?
2: You know, you need to suddenly uh, life happens and you, you are in the middle of a situation and you need to rise to the occasion. And this is what I did. And I'm sure many other CEOs did the same. And if someone else was sitting on this chair, would have done the same. So you are, you understand the responsibilities that fate has put on your shoulders and uh, you carry on. And uh, that's what I did.
3: And you were talking about that responsibility, um, becoming a a CEO that runs a pharmaceutical company to now all of a sudden one of the most sought after men in the world. That has a huge responsibility behind it. What changes have you had to make in your daily life? Do you all of a sudden need more security or does your family need more security?
2: Yeah, yeah, all all of that. I think... um uh, these are the side effects that you don't really enjoy. I mean, you don't have privacy. Now, most of the times, uh, it, uh, it is not a problem. Sometimes uh, you wish that you could go to a restaurant and people don't recognize you. It's always for good right now. I mean, I'm, I'm going to a restaurant and uh, people, I have seen everything. I mean, people giving me standing ovation just entering to a restaurant or the chef going out of the kitchen thanking me because they were able to open the restaurant the business. Thank to the vaccine, and, uh, uh, but of course there are also people that have different views about uh, vaccinations, and uh, some that uh, they, they think that uh, it's not good to have vaccines, and those can become an issue.
3: What's one crazy thing that has happened for maybe someone that's not a fan of the vaccine?
2: Uh, frankly, I have never uh, been in front of a situation like that uh, myself. But I know other uh, colleagues uh, of mine that uh, they had that unfortunate. And, it, you know, it is an unpleasant discussion. And sometimes if it is passionate, it creates fear to, to the scientists, for example, that will be encountered by someone who doesn't believe that vaccines are good.
3: And uh, speaking of the vaccine, can you describe the moment you realized Pfizer had the vaccine? Was it a slow realization or an instant moment? Um, where were you during this moment?
2: It's difficult even to describe it, and it's difficult even to think back. Was it gradual? Was it instant? Uh, It it was a a very important moment, and it happened, uh, it's just a yes or no. That's the first thing that you hear. Yes, no. It's not uh, anything complicated. It was just an explosion of emotions when that happened. And then the second thing that I had to, to hear was, the level of efficacy that was uh, game changing, ninety uh, five point six percent. It was our interim analysis. Uh, that was another moment. That it was more of a moment of reflection. I tried to understand what does this mean for the world. The moment I heard that, there were only three or four people in the world that knew that information, and it was likely the most material information in the world <laughs> at that stage. Right? Could uh, could drive a global health, economy, etc. And then all the hours that followed that were uh, dedicated to processes and what needs to be done rather than me (laughs) reflecting or letting my emotions uh, relax. It was only in the evening of that day when I went home and uh, I had both my kids home and my wife because they were in college, so they were working from home and... uh, and uh, I sat uh, on a chair and I opened a glass of wine, but suddenly strange emotions were coming in my head. My, my parents, uh, people that died, uh, people that uh, worked very hard to make this vaccine. And I had given them so hard time myself by pushing them. And I could feel that now they can see their, their efforts rewarded. So very mixed feelings. My family back in Greece, my my father-in-law on the 80s, who were worried a lot uh, about him uh, and now that he would be able to get the vaccination. So all the human things that everybody can have from news like that came only five, six hours later in the
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th
3: Since you're mentioning your family, it's a good segue. I wanted to switch gears and ask you about your family ancestry. Your mother, she's a Holocaust survivor. She has an incredible story. From what I read, she was minutes away from execution by a firing squad when she was spared via ransom by her non-Jewish brother-in-law. How old were you when you first learned about this story?
2: Very young, because um, the family used to come together. And, you know, my mother had uh, also brothers that they went to Auschwitz and they survived and came back. Unfortunately, not their parents, but uh, themselves they did. And they were a very close family. So uh, Sundays you typically would get all together to have uh, a family lunch. And uh, they would tell stories. It's one of them. One from the camps, my mother from uh, the prison in, in Greece where she was imprisoned and the execution camp. Her sister that uh, paid the ransom, her husband, the non-Jewish uh, husband, uh, a beloved uncle that paid basically everything he had at that time to Germans, to Nazis, so that they can spare her life. So I, I was listening all of that from a very, very young age. And... Um, uh, the thing that was very important and that uh, built our personalities me my sister all my cousins but we were all together was that not not a single one of them uh, were speaking about revenge or uh, hate or or bitterness uh, or they were teaching us how to 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 make sure that uh, we will pay the price back to those that they did that to us that they killed my grandparents that i never met and all of that it was more a celebration of life for them, that they were, uh, my mom particularly, that was a very, very optimistic person in in her life. Uh, She would use that as an example, but never say this is the end, but uh, never say this is impossible. Everything is possible. Just have faith, believe and try. And that is something that put a stamp on me from very young age. That's a great message
3: anything is possible, everything is possible, so long as you stick to it. And it sounds like your mother took a very positive approach to it, as opposed to having fear or anger and trying to uh, think of ways to retaliate. Uh, She took this as a hard lesson learned in life and was positive about that. So how has your family's history shaped you and influenced the person, the leader you are today? How are you applying these lessons to, say, leadership at work?
2: You know, everybody, I think, has a very strong influence from their family. This is where uh, they grow up. And uh, positive or negative, everybody has, let's say, very strong influence. The same is uh, with me, everything I am. I think the the optimism that my my mother had, I think, uh, was transferred to me. And um, I I do that uh, in every aspect of my life, including uh, business.
3: So uh, that positivity, that empathy is uh, what you've been able to translate to to value in business, maybe in dealing with your employees, your staff. Um, Would you say that that's accurate?
2: It is accurate. And you use a very nice word because I think uh, just paying tributes to my mom. She was she had a lot of empathy for people. She the fact that she went through hell, uh, I think, made her even more compassionate to, to, to others, and uh, I could see it uh, every day in the way that she was uh, treating others, particularly those that they, they didn't have enough, uh, and uh, yeah, thank you for bringing that to work. Reminded me.
3: So what are you most proud of with your contribution to Pfizer, and what are you most excited about for the Pfizer's transformative journey?
2: Look, I'm never satisfied with my contribution to anything, so I think I need to, to do way more. Uh, there were a few things that uh, give me optimism for, for the future. And this is that um, uh, we were able to demonstrate to this organization in the most profound way what my mom was taught me. Nothing is impossible. You can do the impossible possible. It's just you need to have perseverance. You believe and they go for it. Don't take no for an answer and results will come. I think that's what uh, makes Pfizer now unique. I think what makes Pfizer standing out right now. uh, People believe, yes, we are Pfizer we can make it. And uh, I think then we will see this uh, COVID vaccine type of moments in rare diseases, in cardiovascular diseases, in in cancer, in, uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, in many different diseases that uh, the need is unmet, the medical need, yeah. I think that's the biggest thing that uh, Pfizer has right now uh, to feel proud of.
3: As a leader, what's one of the biggest mistakes you've ever made and you learned from this?
2: Ah, so many, and uh, and, uh, I'm sure I did, I know, but I did several also during the COVID development. Uh, Thankfully, not very critical. Uh, once, But um, I will tell you uh, one that um, uh, I regret even during COVID, right? So I was pushing a lot of pressure. I was putting a lot of pressure on the teams to be able to, to, to develop the vaccine. And um, uh, I think all of them, not most of them, all of them, they're fine with that because they knew what it is at stake. And uh, no matter how unpleasant uh, that pressure could be, they knew that they, we all needed to excel. But... Uh, I'm human being so a few times I the emotions made me too lost and I, I was maybe disrespectful to some people or I I spoke down I regret them I mean I was it was so unfair for people I mean as Mediterranean after that I would call them to apologize but it's not the point the point is that I did it so that's something that uh, I regret uh, profoundly that I did and uh, it was also very unfair because those people were working day and night so I apologize to them I hope that they they forgive me
3: During the pandemic, you spent a lot of time in Greece. And do you think with this new work-from-home environment, you'll spend even more time in Greece?
2: I wish I could spend even more. But I did. I I spent a month uh, during my vacations, two weeks of vacations. And then I took two weeks, but I worked from Greece. And that was feasible because everybody was working from somewhere in front of a computer. Yes, I think... um, uh, Pandemic forced us to do a major experiment that uh, we would uh, never dare to do under normal conditions. I'm joking by saying if someone was coming in my office in January of 2020 and would tell me, I have a bright idea, we should let everybody work from home for the next one year, no one comes to the office, I would uh, think that uh, they're nuts. I would never uh, think that that's something that uh, we could uh, do. And then suddenly we are forced to do, it, and guess what? It worked very, very well. I think that we have a lot to, to learn because one year is not enough to drive conclusions. It was clear that we could work between among people that know each other very well. What about new hires that they don't know anyone? I mean, is the period the minimum period that people need to get acclimated before they can be productive on a digital environment? All of that needs to be seen in the future, and I think eventually a hybrid model of higher flexibility will be embraced by all because it's way more human centric. Flexibility allows people to have peace of mind, allows people, allows a father to, to walk the kids into the school and come back to or go and pick them up and come back to, to home and, uh, and work from them rather than which was impossible to do if uh, he was uh, sitting in, in an office one hour away uh, from home or someone to do the shopping. So it's, uh, it's uh, flexibility is, is, uh, is good. And I think happy people always perform better. And uh, I think it's here to stay.
3: That's a great message. Flexibility and happy people perform better. Absolutely. So as you know, this podcast is called Out of Office. What is your favorite thing to do when you're in Greece, when you're out of the office?
2: Look, you need to put it into context. Usually I'm in Greece during summertime, for example. This is where I try to, to, to go. And uh, I always, I'm, I'm, I left Greece 26 years ago. I always, 26 times, 26 summers, I've been to Greece. And I've been to for vacations together with my friends from high school. who well, They are waiting for me with their wives and uh, me and my wife and we go together. This is what we do. And usually we like to have one week touring islands, different islands every, every, every time. Because there are so many Greek islands and they are very different one from another. And then we, we settle somewhere that uh, we can relax and enjoy the sun and the good company.
3: Have you ever gone scuba diving off any of the islands?
2: I did. I did. I was uh, quite good in scuba diving and uh, I haven't done it in the last four years, I think, because I became CEO and it was very busy. And then I became, the COVID came and make it, but I love scuba diving.
3: Yeah, it's wonderful. I love scuba diving as well. One way to tell a lot about someone is where they've been, where they've traveled to, and what they collect. So everyone collects something. What do you collect?
2: I like to take pictures, particularly on my private uh, trips. Photography was a hobby of mine. I, I, I like, in the beginning, of course, was uh, black and white, more artistic forms of uh, of photo when i was uh, young now it's digital and uh, uh, that's i think that what i like to collect the most
3: Merck is likely to be the first to market with a COVID pill. Where does that leave Pfizer? How is Pfizer thinking about how it will make its own wave and be different?
2: Look, I think Merck announced very good results, a 50% efficacy, and now they are submitting uh, their paperwork to FDA so that they can get an approval. We are working on a different mechanism of action, very different, but still oral is, is a pill. And we are waiting to see our uh, results. Uh, I hope that we are successful as well. I hope that uh, we have two oral uh, options so that uh, physicians can choose uh, based on uh, the, the conditions of the patients. Options are always very good. Uh, what we do it is to try to make sure that we come to a very good medicine. And the way we define very good medicine, it is high efficacy, outstanding safety. And uh, we should be able to end something that we can produce at scale. We are running the studies, hoping uh, that uh, what we predict will become reality. But I have seen many times in science, it's like love, science. You can get the best satisfaction and the biggest disappointment sometimes. So I hope that uh, in this case, we will get uh, great satisfaction when we see the results.
3: What are your thoughts about mixing and matching booster shots?
2: I think that it is, uh, provides flexibility. Uh, it means very little right now if you have uh, amper availability of uh, of uh, vaccines. So if someone got uh, Moderna, can stay with Moderna. If someone got uh, Pfizer, can stay in with Pfizer. It's more important if someone got Moderna, suddenly there's no Moderna. Or if someone got Pfizer and suddenly there is no Pfizer available, can we substitute with Moderna? I think that's most of the cases. But um, I think it, always flexibility is, is a good thing. It's a small study, I repeat but uh, that NIH is, has done. But it's a very well-designed uh, study, so we'll see what FDA and uh, CDC will say.
3: You got the booster shot. How long does this shot last? Are there concerns that people who maybe took the vaccine last February are currently at risk?
2: I think, yes. Uh, if they got in February, there are more than six months. And already there is a recommendation that if uh, they are uh, having a profession that uh, exposed them, to to risk of a high risk of COVID or if they have underlying conditions or if they are above 65 years old, they should take. It. In other countries, actually, uh, the, the age is way, way down. So uh, I think eventually in the U.S. also, the authorities, as they are getting more and more data and information, will transition to bringing the booster to, to earlier stages. Now, how long the booster will last, I don't think we know. Uh, because we need to wait uh, for at least a year and then two years. Uh, But uh, if I have to make a prediction, I believe that um, we should be able to get good immune responses for at least one year. But that remains uh, to be seen. So we can move into a situation that we have a series of three vaccinations and then annual uh, for life uh, or for as long as uh, there is COVID around. Vaccinations should keep us very, very well protected and able to live a normal, normal life.
3: So here in the US, we're talking about booster jabs and shots for kids five to 11 years old. However, in other countries, some people are still waiting for their first jab. How do you feel about Pfizer's role providing more equitable access to vaccines?
2: I think it's extremely important, uh, our role, to to provide equitable access and uh, to be able to have a vaccine that everybody can have There are three conditions. Uh, The first is to develop a vaccine, because now you consider it given. Uh, Twelve months ago, nobody thought that uh, we would be able to have one. So we made one. The second is to give it to all at a price that they can afford. And uh, we are giving right now our uh, vaccine with a tier pricing. Uh, If you are a high-income country, it is uh, the cost of a takeaway meal for the government. And then the government gives it for free the citizens, but for the government, a cost of a takeaway meal. Uh, If it is, though, a middle-income country, not a high-income country, it is half of this cost from our side. And if it is a low-income country, then we give it a non-for-profit base. So the price is not an issue for them. And then the third that needs to be done is to have enough vaccine for all. And in the first six months, we produced one billion doses. But right now, in the second six months of this year, uh, we are going to produce an additional 2 billion doses, so 3 billions in total. And uh, next year, 4 billion doses. We did that because we put significant manufacturing investments behind it and, of course, a lot of expertise to be able to do that. I think pretty soon everybody will have availability if they want to make a vaccine. I think there will be, in the low-income countries, I foresee different type of challenges in a few months. Uh, The challenges would be uh, their infrastructure to be able to to do massive uh, vaccinations and uh, also the ability to convince everyone to to get the vaccine. But I think uh, pretty soon we should be able to have enough for everyone. Just to give you also a magnitude. Right now, we have provided vaccines to 146 countries so far. 146 countries have received the vaccine. Right now, approximately 550 million doses have so far until now have gone to lower and middle income countries. And by the end of this year, which is at the end of uh, December, we should have exceeded a billion doses to low and middle income countries with the prices that I said. So I think it's significant the contribution that Pfizer is, is having. And very few companies, frankly, can claim that they have done better good to humanity, than five.
3: Incredible. And when do you see the nearest term to get an emergency use vaccination for kids under five? And for those that don't understand what the difference is between emergency approval and just uh, full FDA approval, can you explain that?
2: Yes, emergency authorization, it is a process that FDA uh, uses when there is an immediate uh, threat risk to the health of citizens. And then they have accelerated processes in terms of reviewing data, etc., so that uh, they can provide an approval to, to a vaccine. It, it doesn't mean that you don't have to perform all the studies that uh, are required, but uh, they are doing that in a very expedited manner. Our application for 5 to 11 has been submitted. It is under review, and there will be an advisory committee of independent experts, independent from FDA as well, of course, independent from us, but will review the data and also will provide advice to the FDA. That will happen before the end of this month. Uh, this is a new formulation for those uh, kids. It is one third of the dose. So it is uh, in uh, in one shot of an adult vaccine, we are giving 30 micrograms of mRNA. In uh, this shot for 5 to 11, we will give 10 micrograms of uh, an mRNA. And uh, we were very, very pleased to see the results because, of course, the safety profile is uh, excellent because it's very good because of, uh, of uh, one third of the dose. We were wondering if we will be able to have equal high immunogenicity with one third of the dose and to have very good and also very good efficacy because uh, also we are measuring that. So, all news are good. And we are working also to another age group, 2 to 5. Over there, we are going to use even less mRNA, 2 micrograms, instead of 30 on the adults. And uh, those studies are ongoing.
3: And what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered?
2: (laughs) I don't know, I'm not ready to to think I want to be remembered, but uh, clearly uh, that I had, like everyone in life, you want to know that uh, you had an impact in the lives of others. Irrelevant if this is an impact in the lives of your kids or if you're in a position to have an impact in the lives of uh, the citizens of a country or the patients of a group. That's what I want to do. And uh, uh, we have done uh, a few things that uh, uh, make me feel very, very good but uh, I know that there are a lot of things that you can do more so I'm uh, I'm focusing on that right now
3: Albert thanks so much for joining us really appreciate it
2: Thank you very very much
1: That was my colleague Nicole Sawyer speaking to Pfizer's Albert Burla what an incredible story I was particularly struck by his family's history and the fact that no one in his family speaks about their Holocaust experience with bitterness and revenge. Instead, the focus is on having faith, a lesson in there for all of us. Thank you for listening to this episode. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. Stay well. And as always, thank you for listening.